Good day, everyone, and welcome to the Moody's webinar, Slow Session Delayed. Today's webinar is being recorded. To ratings, financial reporting analysis, projections, and other observations, if any, concentrating part of the information contained herein are and must be construed solely as statements of opinion and not statements of fact or recommendations to purchase, sell, or hold any securities. We ask that no one record this conversation without Moody's explicit written permission. And lastly, no one has permission to quote any of the comments made or questions asked by the webinar audience. Please note that the following presentation has been authored by Moody's Analytics, which operates independently of the Moody's Investor Service Credit Rating Agency. If you would like to ask a question during the webinar, please enter it in the Q&A box in the lower right corner of the webinar presentation screen. I would now like to turn the call over to Mark Zandi from Moody's Analytics. Please go ahead. Thanks, Kath. Good day, everyone. Uh, I'm joined today by two of my uh, colleagues, uh, Chris Dorides, uh, Deputy Chief Economist, and Marissa Di Natale, a senior economist that uh, manages uh, much of our forecast function. And uh, we're going to be talking about the U.S. macro economy, the, the prospects for the economy over the next year or two. And we're going to do it a little differently than we have in the past. I'm going to give you a sense of our kind of baseline outlook uh, kind of in the middle of the distribution of possible outcomes, most likely outlook. Uh, won't spend a lot of time on that, but just want to give you kind of a sense of it. And, you know, bottom line, uh, the outlook looks pretty good. Uh, we've uh, been long saying the economy would avoid a recession. Feels like that is uh, likely to uh, happen, that the economy is going to be able to navigate through, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But, uh we're going to spend most of our time on the question posed here, what could go wrong? Uh, and uh, to that end, uh, we uh, conducted a survey of, of folks that were registering for, the, for this webinar and asked the question, what are your top five concerns? What's keeping you up at night? What, what could go wrong? And so we're going to uh, discuss the answers that came in at the top of the list, uh, top six risks. Uh, and uh, we've had a fair number of responses. I think we had a, at least 125, 150 folks kind of weigh in here. And uh, all of these concerns that we're gonna discuss had at least 30% of the responses. So um, I think uh, have a pretty good sense of what people are, are nervous about. Uh, and we'll walk through that uh, uh, in just a few minutes. Um, the, the webinar is scheduled for an hour. I'm pretty sure we're going to go over. Uh, I apologize. It, you know, you will we'll have a tape. This will be taped, and you, you can see it uh, if you're not able to stay on for the entire time. And the last thing I want to say is uh, questions. Uh, fire away. Uh, you know, you see the, the, the you can uh, pose questions here. Please uh, feel free to do that. I already noticed we've got a couple uh, already coming in. Uh, and uh, that's great. Uh, and, and I know we got a lot of questions at registration, and we're going to uh, answer most of those, if not all of them, along the way here. Okay, so with that as preface, um, the baseline, uh, I'm, I'm feeling good about things. Uh, you know, a year ago this time, I think my, the, my angst the, uh, was at its, uh, about the economy's prospect was probably at its apex. Of course, the consensus view was pretty dark at the time. I think the majority, vast majority of economists were expecting a recession at some point in 23 going into 24. 
uh, consensus has shifted. I think people still are a little bit more nervous than I am, but I'm feeling pretty good about things. Uh, even so far as to say, I think we might be able to call this a soft landing. I, you know, I had thought that that might be a bit of a mis misnomer. We, even if we avoided a recession, that the economy would feel more uncomfortable. And I'm sure there's going to be points in time here in 24, going into 25, when we are going to feel uncomfortable about how things are going. But I think at this point, soft landing might be a pretty good description of what might un unfold uh, over the course of the next uh, 12, uh, 18, 18 months or so. Uh, at the uh, at the root of this uh, optimism, this sort of relative optimism, and I don't want to be Pollyannish. I mean, recession risks are still elevated. I'd put them at, you know, 25%, one in four for a recession starting at some point in the next year. Unconditional probability of recession is probably about 15%. So that's still high, still uncomfortable, but um, but uh, moving in the right direction. And the and the number one reason for uh, this uh, more sanguine view is inflation is is just doing what we need it to do. It's coming in uh, back to the Fed's target. And you get a clear sense of that here. This is uh, consumer price inflation, uh, the uh, overall CPI index. And um, you can see here, I'm excluding the shelter component. Uh, and I'll come back to that in just a minute. But uh, the overall CPI X, X shelter is the green line. This is percent change year ago. This is data from the start of 2018 through October, the last uh, historical data point from uh, BLS, Bureau of Statistics. The blue line is the core CPI, that's uh, excluding food and energy. And I've also, as you can see, excluded shelter. The point is uh, pretty obvious. Inflation uh, outside of the cost of the growth in the cost of housing services, the cost of shelter is back to the Fed's uh, target, um, you know, even beyond the target, you know, even a little bit lower than that. So. Uh, all very encouraging, and, and thus the, the the key here to getting inflation back completely in the bottle, back to the Fed's target, is uh, the cost of shelter, uh, growth in the cost of shelter. And all the trend lines here look pretty good. Uh, you know, the at the end of the day, uh, the growth in the cost of housing services is tied to uh, market rents, and you can see that uh, it, with a, with a long lag, just because of the fact that leases roll over uh, generally over a period of a year. So it just takes a while for the shifts in rents to kind of translate through in terms of what it means for the uh, cost of housing services. But you can see here uh, in this uh, chart that uh, rent growth has really come in very dramatically. That's the green line left-hand scale. It's uh, the growth in rents as measured by uh, Yardi and uh, uh, you know, basically flat. Uh, year over year, uh, get, getting other there's obviously other data sources here. Apartment list. Uh, uh, Chris sent me uh, a release from them yesterday, and showing and this they had data through November that year over year apartment rents are down about one, uh, a little over one percent. So let's say flat to down over the past year. You can see, given the lags are about a year, it would suggest that in the coming year that blue line, which is the consumer price index for for shelter. Will continue to move south and you know get back close to something that would be more consistent with overall inflation getting back to target. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of other cross currents here in in terms of the inflation numbers. Um, you know, I think the cost of healthcare will probably accelerate, particularly for health insurance, given the way that's measured. But you know, new vehicle prices just have, have just recently started to roll over. They're, they're I would expect to decline more substantively going forward. 
So you kind of take it all together and add it all up. It feels uh, very likely at this point that uh, inflation is going to get back to the Federal Reserve's target uh, by this time next year. I feel quite confident uh, at this point uh, in that uh, in that economic forecast. So reason number one for optimism around the soft landing baseline is uh, inflation. It, it's coming back in uh, reasonably gracefully. Reason number two, <clears throat> uh, given the uh, fact that inflation is coming in and the economy is moderating, growth is, uh, at least in the labor market, job market moderating uh, in a uh, kind of a slow, steady, consistent way, I think interest rates have peaked. Uh, you can see th uh, that here in this chart. It shows a number of different interest rates, uh, data back to 2015. You can see I've given a little bit more forecast here through the end of 2025. And I think it's pretty clear at this point the Fed is now finished raising interest rates. Uh, the funds rate target, the black line, is now at its so-called terminal rate. Uh, somewhere between five and a quarter and five and a half percent. You'll you'll notice that uh, you know rates. I don't expect rates to uh, the Fed to cut rates uh, quickly. Uh, I think it'll uh, it'll only be when it's clear to the Federal Reserve that Zandi's forecast about inflation is correct and is uh, that inflation is going to get back to target by the end of the year that they will start cutting rates. And that probably won't be until mid next year. In fact, in our forecast, which shown here. The first rate cut uh, by the Fed is at the June FOMC meeting. It's a slow set of series of cuts after that. I, you know, and I just one quick point of interest. You know, obviously next year is an election year, and I, I think all else being equal, I think the Federal Reserve would like to not have to move interest rates very much one way or the other. Just don't want to get caught up in the politics that are going to be pretty awkward, I think, and ugly in 24. And, and would I, I think they will cut, but I think they'll be reticent to cut too much. Uh, just given the, you know the political backdrop, uh, you also note that other interest rates uh, also I think have peaked. Uh, the ten-year Treasury yield. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you've been watching that recently, but wow, uh, the ten-year Treasury yield now down back. I think last I looked was four point one percent. If you go back just probably six eight weeks ago, it was flirting with five and felt like it was going to go north. We're back down to to four, and that's. Very consistent with where we think long rates, 10 year treasury yields should be in the long run. They should be roughly equal to the nominal potential growth rate of the economy. And uh, that's where they are, you know, somewhere between four, four and a quarter, maybe as high as four and a half percent, you know, something like that. So I think we're there. Uh, I don't think we're going to see any further, uh, you know, obviously rates go up, they go down, they go all around. So uh, they're not going to, th this picture is definitely going to be wrong, but, uh, you know, roughly speaking, Cutting through the volatility, um, in, in I think rates ten ten year Treasury yields are pretty pretty close to as high they're, as they're going to get, and that's good news in terms of mortgage rates. The thirty year fixed, you know, obviously got as high as eight percent back when the ten year was at uh, five. Uh, it's now come in a bit. We're now closer to seven, and you can see, you know, over time here, we'll, we'll, the difference between mortgage rates and and the ten year yield will narrow probably around the time it's clear that the Fed is going to start lowering interest rates and some of the volatility in the bond market will come out. It's the, it's the volatility in bond, bond yields <clears throat> that's adding to the prepayment risk in those mortgage securities and, and adding to the spread, and that should start to come out. Um, uh, even longer run, I would expect the 30-year fix to kind of settle in around 6 maybe a little south of that, 55 to 6%, something like that. So that's uh, also moving in the right direction. One other quick point, and I'll move on. 
you will notice that the federal funds rate target is higher than the 10-year Treasury yield throughout the period shown here through the end of 25. That means the yield curve, the difference between long-term and short-term interest rates, will be inverted. Uh, the Fed's funds rate is above the 10-year. Uh, it's, it's much less inverted than it was, but it, as you can see, we expect it to remain inverted. And uh, that's a pretty uh, uncomfortable place to be if you're a financial institution, uh, just because the yield curve is very important to net interest margins, uh, what banks lend, uh, the rate they lend at compared to the, their funding costs. And uh, their net interest margins are going to be under some pressure. And we'll come back to that in the uh, context of the risks. Uh, uh, but uh, broadly, uh, more broadly, uh, good news here. I, I think uh, uh, increasingly we can be increasingly confident that uh, rates have peaked. They're going to start to come in, and that's a, another positive. Third positive uh, point uh, is that, um, and this is critical, consumers are hanging tough. They're doing their part. Uh, they're not sp they're spending. They're not spending with abandon. They're not spending hair on fire. Uh, that you know that would be a problem because that would mean the economy is growing too quickly. Inflation would be a would be an issue. But they're you know doing exactly what you'd expect them to do. And that's the point of this chart. This shows real consumer spending. So consumer spending after inflation, indexed to equal 100 in February of 2020. So right before the pandemic, showing you data back to 2018. And the last data point is for October of 23. That black dotted line represents the trend growth in real consumer spending pre-pandemic. And you can see actual overall spending today. The blue line is precisely where you would have expected to be if, if the trends prior to the pandemic continued on uh, to the current period. So consumers are they're doing their thing. <clears throat> lots of good reasons for that. Lots of jobs, low unemployment, wage growth is now stronger than inflation. So real purchasing power has improved. Uh, there's still plenty of excess saving for high-income, middle-income households. Not so much low-income households. That's where the stresses uh, are most pronounced. But uh, they, it's the high-income, middle-income households that account for the vast bulk of uh, consumer spending. People are a lot wealthier than they were pre-pandemic. Uh, you know, stock prices are back up. Housing values are back up. Uh, uh, you know, net worth uh, is now as high as it's been uh, in history, and you know, continues to rise. Um, you know, it all it feels good. Consumer sentiment is a, a bit of an enigma, particularly if you look at the University of Michigan survey. But I think that overstates the kind of pessimism. I, I think uh, the better uh, barometer of uh, sentiment, at least as in terms of what it means for what people are actually doing spending, is the conference board survey. And that that's pretty close to its long run average. You know, it's not like people are really feeling great about things, but they're not feeling uh, you know, as pessimistic as the University of Michigan survey suggests. So I think sentiment is certainly fragile in the risk, but uh, I think it's uh, it's just fine. So bottom line, I think uh, I can go on, uh, but I, I, I don't want to. I, I do want to get to the risks. Bottom line is it uh, feels pretty good. The economy is going to navigate through next year. Just to give you a number, we have real GDP growth in calendar year 24 of point. Uh, 8%, you know, kind of one and a half to two, similar kind of growth in 2025. And just for context, the economy's potential rate of growth is it's probably around two, although given recent developments on the supply side of the economy, labor force growth, productivity growth, I'm, I'm inclined to think that the uh, underlying trend uh, GDP growth might be actually a little bit higher than two, but let's just go with two. So, uh, and that would mean that 
job growth is going to slow, get south of 100K per month here as we move into 2024 into 25. Unemployment is going to notch a little bit higher. We're at 3.9. We have it kind of settling in the low fours, you know, 4.1, 4.2, maybe 4.3 for a month or two, something like that. But pretty, pretty sanguine economic outlook. Now, of course, there are lots of risks, and this is now we're turning to the meat of the matter, uh, and I'm going to shortly turn the conversation over to Chris and Marissa uh, to guide us through some of these risks. But as I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, uh, we did conduct a survey of, of participants to the webinar and asked you know, what they're worried about, and they, they show up for the most part here. This is our risk matrix. You've seen this before. I, I just love this because it kind of makes it a lot easier to get your mind around the things that uh, might go wrong. These are all downside risks, obviously. The x-axis, the horizontal axis, is the uh, severity of the risk. Uh, kind of like, I think of it like a present value of economic loss if the risk were to uh, take place. So it accounts for the the, uh, the hit to the economy when it occurs, but it also accounts for the timing of that hit. If it's further into the future, it's uh, more to the left, I'll, excuse me, of the axis. The, the Y uh, axis, the vertical axis, is the probability of the threat. And, you know, obviously you want to focus on the risks that are kind of in the northeast part of the chart. And the uh, the risks that are highlighted in red are the risks that you uh, identified as being your top concerns. Uh, a little surprising to me, at the very tippity top of the list, commercial real estate collapse. That was your number one risk. Uh, so interesting. Uh, I thought that was, uh, uh, you know, pretty... Uh, insightful. Uh, number two, geopolitical threats. Uh, number three, the Federal Reserve missteps. Okay, now you're back in line with uh, kind of our thinking. Uh, number four um, is uh, the banking system seizes up again. Uh, number five, uh, uh, this is a, a little bit of an error. Uh, it should say, you see that 2024 election strife? Uh, that uh, is risk number five. It kind of, it's kind of a catch-all for what you might call social and political unrest. And that goes to, you know, well, Merce is going to explain this, but it goes to the, you know, the, the potential uh, problems that we're going to face as we uh, go uh, lead up to the, and then uh, the 24 election in November. And then final, finally, house price, uh, house prices crash. And all these are risks that uh, at least 30% of the respondents uh, said uh, was a problem for them. So this, uh, this kind of gives you a sense of things. So, uh, with that, uh, one more point before I move on and hand the baton to Chris to talk about the uh, commercial real estate market. Um, uh, I would say for the first time in a long time that the risks aren't solely to the downside, uh, that you can now construct upside scenarios. And I alluded to that earlier with regard to the supply side of the economy. It does feel like the supply side, uh, labor force growth, labor productivity growth, have some real kind of uh, fundamental life to them. And if that's the case, that means we can grow more strongly, you know, more GDP, more income, more profits, higher stock prices, you know, all else being equal, higher real estate values uh, without inflation uh, picking up. Uh, and that, that would be very encouraging. It's not our baseline. Uh, we still have uh, potential growth at two, but nonetheless, uh, the risks are now uh, no longer uh, one-sided; they are uh, they are double-sided. Okay. With that as a as a preface, let me uh, now turn the conversation. We're going to go through each of these risks that you've identified in some detail, and let me turn the conversation over uh, to Chris. Chris, before I we move on, any key questions that came up 
uh, that you want to dispose from from the audience, or should we just keep moving forward? You know, you know, there were a lot of questions about the Fed and Fed policy, but I think you're going to get to that later. So maybe, maybe we just hold off on that. Okay. And uh, I think you answered a number of the questions throughout the uh, throughout your talk track. So why don't we hold? Why don't we move ahead? Because we got a lot of material, and we can circle yep. back to any of the additional questions. Sounds great. Fire away. Okay. All right, so uh, commercial real estate, as you mentioned, Mark, was at the top of the list in terms of the concerns, at least the concerns that uh, folks in the audience wanted to hear about. Maybe it, that, may, that might differ from what folks would actually rank as the top, uh, top concern in, in absolute. Um, as you saw in our risk matrix, it's not, it's not at the top of our list, it's, but it is certainly identified as a, as a potential threat. And certainly if you're in the commercial real estate industry, if you have properties or you're a lender, Obviously, uh, collapse in, real, in commercial real estate matters a lot. And I, I think the, the nexus, or just to underscore why uh, there is so much concern in, in, when it comes to commercial real estate right now, is that clearly prices are under pressure, right? Uh, commercial real estate is undergoing a, uh, a secular shift uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic, clearly with more work from home. Uh, you have folks not utilizing office space to the degree that they did in the past. That's certainly putting downward pressure on on offices but even more fundamentally or broad more broadly you do see shifts throughout uh the the entire industry when it comes to lower or potentially higher uh, uh unoccupied or lower vacancy rates um or i'm sorry higher vacancy rates that might push down um uh, prices so on the chart here you can see our uh, moody's analytics commercial real estate price index right this is a uh, an index based on on transactions that we've constructed. And you can see quite clearly the, uh, the run-up in prices uh, in the early days of the pandemic from 2020 to say 2022, and then more recently, uh, the declines. And in some cases, such as multifamily, the declines have already been quite appreciable. Uh, you, have, you do see declines across the board with the exception of hotels, which are up modestly at, at about 2% um, uh, since, the recent, uh, since the recent peak. The, um, what, what else you can see here is that uh, clearly there is uh, some downward pressure when it comes uh, to offices. And uh, on top of that, you do see that there is even downward pressure in industrial properties, which have been getting some uh, uh, more, uh, more interest as more and more firms have moved to reshore um, uh, their operations. So you do see an industry that is, that is uh, underweight or under threat uh, due to some of those structural changes as well as the higher interest rate environment. And that's really adding uh, greater concern in terms of, of the risks of a more substantial commercial real estate collapse. And the reason for that, if we turn to the next slide here, is that there, there are quite a few loans on CRE properties that are coming due over the next five years. So in the chart here, you can see the uh, volume of, loan, of CRE loans that are maturing by year and then broken out by property type. So you can see that through 2027, we have something in, in the neighborhood of 400 to $500 billion a year of uh, loans uh, maturing uh, in this environment where interest rates uh, certainly are, are, are high and are projected to remain uh, relatively high throughout this period, certainly much higher than they were during 2020 or at the very bottom of, a, of the market. So that's certainly going to put more and more pressure on property owners who need to refinance uh, their loans as they come due, and potentially puts more pressure on the banking system as well, as 
we see more and more of these uh, properties potentially going into delinquency and ultimately in, into default. So I think this uh, underscores a lot of the concern when it comes to uh, commercial real estate, just that we do have this ongoing set of, of loans that are, that are going to be coming due. But I think a little bit of context is needed. And if you look at the, um, at the box in the upper right-hand corner, one thing to note is that although office gets a lot of attention and is expected to see some pretty substantial price declines over the next few years here, it's not the bulk of uh, a commercial real estate property. It's about 20% or so of the loans coming due over the next couple of years. So clearly having an impact, but not necessarily representing the entire industry. You would have some strength uh, in, the, in the form of industrial properties, retail pro some retail properties, and even hotels. So uh, important to bear in mind that there is a bit of a, of a mix here in terms of the, uh, of the property types. There's also a mix within within property types as well. So if you look at retail, might be uh, certainly concerned of, uh, about retail operations in center city uh, cores, but other uh, strip malls in more suburban areas seem to be doing just fine and even are, are seeing price uh, increases. So there is some heterogeneity here that's gonna offset some of the, the potential risk here. The other thing to note is that uh, there's a lot of concern about CRE because of the exposure of banks. And I think Mark can get into some of this detail later, certainly banks do have exposure, but again, as you can see in the chart, they are not the dominant holder of a lot of this credit. You have pension funds, life insurance companies, hedge funds, a lot of other investors that are backing these loans as well. So uh, it's in terms of the macroeconomic impact, certainly banks could, uh, could be harmed, but the chances of that really spilling out into a broader uh, financial crisis or a broader economic um, uh, downturn are more limited, right? They're not they're not zero, uh, but uh, the fact is that the, the banks don't have quite the exposure to all of this uh, CRE debt as as we might otherwise uh, think. So that this uh, hopefully encapsulates the reason why we don't have CRE crashes built into our baseline and not not even at the top of our list uh, in terms of risks. But nonetheless, uh, we are mindful that there are uh, potential scenarios here that could cause. Uh, a CRE uh, decline in prices or, or decline in CRE prices to trigger a broader macroeconomic event. So back in September, September we actually uh, produced a CRE so-called doom loop scenario, where declines, significant declines in CRE prices, start to trigger uh, additional loan defaults, which car which cause prices to decline further, which could trigger more defaults, and so on and so forth. Right. So we wanted to examine what the potential impact could be if we had a significant uh, decline in CRE prices and a very acute decline, right? Under the baseline, we assume that prices are going to adjust more gradually over, say, the next three, four years. Uh, in our uh, CRE doom loop scenario, we assume that the, the correction occurs much more uh, violently, much more acute. So in the chart here, you can see some of our assumptions for CRE prices under different uh, scenarios. Under the baseline, we assume a 15% uh, peak to trough decline across the entire industry. Under the CRE crash scenario, we're assuming a 30%, which is on par with what we have for our scenario three. So those of you who use our scenarios, that's our 90th percentile scenario, so quite similar, but not quite as severe as what uh, the Fed envisioned in their stress test, severely adverse uh, scenario back at, at the start of this year. That scenario envisions a 36% in uh, CRE prices, 
but also adds a number of, of other uh, negative uh, shocks to the economy as well. So it's, it's really not just the CRE impact, but everything else as well that, that causes the economy to, to falter even more. We ran the scenario, and I won't go into details today. If you're interested, we certainly have paper and, and scenarios are available. But in terms of the macroeconomic impact uh, and the risk that we should be concerned with, a CRE crash certainly uh, uh, would lead to a, uh, a recession. Unemployment rate would rise to about 5.7% under our scenario. So clearly something we want to watch out for. Right? There is risk here and risk of spread, but not quite as severe a scenario, uh, a scenario as we might have envisioned under our scenario three or that uh, Fred stress trend. That Fed stress test uh, scenario. So, um, for this reason, important to have this on the radar screen. But um, one of the perhaps uh, uh, saving graces of the CRE market today is that the risks do appear to be well known. Right, this is all out in the open. Banks are aware of these uh, potential risks, and they are taking steps to mitigate many of the, uh, of, the of the risk factors here. But nonetheless. If we were to get hit with another type of shock on top of the CRE uh, declines here, that certainly would be fodder for a recession. I'll stop there, Mark, and maybe turn it back to you. Any questions? Or Yeah. Um, so it feels like the concerns about this were higher, I'd say, three, four, five months ago. When we ran the doom loop scenario back in September, it felt like that, that was concerns around this were much more heightened and you know as we've gotten more there's been you know more time to evaluate what's going on and get a sense of how things are going to play out the concern has uh has moderated to some degree w would you characterize with that kind of uh uh thinking i would I, I would i think there was a lot of uncertainty not you know some of the data wasn't uh as visible as what we have now and Banks certainly, after the, uh, the banking crisis earlier this year, have taken a closer look at their portfolios. I think they have a much greater insight into the various positions that they have. So I think we're able to, to size the problem up a bit better. It was just There was a lot of uncertainty, and that certainly creates a lot of anxiety. Um, so again, I, don't, I think there's still lots of uh, reason for, uh, for some concern. But uh, I do see uh, lenders taking steps to try to mitigate some of this risk. And certainly as the interest rates are moderating here, at least in the short term, that, that should help to uh, improve the outlook as well. So I'm going to put you on the spot uh, just yeah. to give people context. What do you think the probability is of some type of, some type of crash scenario? It doesn't, I guess it doesn't have to be this severe, but something that's materially worse you can define that however you want, materially worse than our kind of baseline expectation. Because even in our baseline, we're expecting price declines in the CRE market. We are expecting delinquency defaults to increase on CRE loans. But, you know, something, you know, meaningfully worse than that, what, what kind of probability would you put, put on that? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, relatively low. I'd say 10, 15 percent. Okay. Um, and this is talking nationally, right? Certainly in certain markets. Yeah, nationally, I see, yeah. Like, you know, there is going to be more pain in certain markets, but in terms of a national um, uh, crash that starts to put real pressure on the financial system, I think that's, you know, 
not immaterial, but it's it's not it's not the highest uh, probability I would assign to some of the risks. Okay, so if you were signing up for this webinar and was asked top five yeah. concerns, would CRE be one of those top five? Um, probably not. Close call. Probably, probably Close not. Close call. Okay. Probably number six. Close call. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Hey, one last question, and kind of a more technical question. I'm yeah. turning the slides back to this. <clears throat> Lots of kind of questions around the price data. This is our repeat yeah. sales CRE price data. And you see multifamily down six, already down 16% from the peak, which was late last year. But office down only 1.9. Yeah. That just feels incongruous, doesn't it, with kind of people's thinking around multifamily and office. So what do you think's going on here? Yeah, a great point. Um, I think, uh, well, a couple things to note is that our index is based on closed transactions, right? And we know transaction volumes are very low at the moment. The, uh, to the extent property owners can hold on and ride this thing out, that seems to be the, what, what they're trying to do. Banks are working with their um, their, um, their mortgagees as well to, to try to mitigate. Right? They don't want to repossess uh, properties if they can avoid it. So I think that's holding off some of the price discovery that we might uh, see if, if we had a healthier uh, market here. Then in terms of, well, why is multifamily down so much more uh, than, than office? I do think there's a compositional effect here in terms of the actual um, property owners as well, right? Offices are large. They tend to be held by large corporations, right? They're, they're not inexpensive properties. Multifamily, right? Although they can be very large. You have a little bit more heterogeneity here. You could have smaller investors uh, potentially owning apartment building. So I think uh, in terms of liquidity concerns or you know, other uh, factors impacting the ability to pay and, and folks having to uh, go delinquent or, or defaulting, I think, it, I think it's reasonable that we do see some of that showing up in the multifamily sector first. Right? So that's, that's my rationale, but I, I think we have to wait and see as, these, as, the, as the transactions actually come in, we'll get a better picture. And you know, this is a repaid sales index. There could be revisions here that uh, show mm -hmm. that perhaps office was down more than uh, what we, we were seeing at the at this point. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, let's uh, move on to risk number two, and that is uh, threats posed by what's going on geopolitically. And goodness knows there's a lot of things going on geopolitically that are uh, kind of uncomfortable to watch. And to kind of guide us through that part of the conversation, let me turn the baton over to to Marissa. Marissa, uh, um, the baton is yours. Thanks, Mark. So this was your second uh, risk that you listed uh, wanting to hear about today. This risk for us is kind of, if you go back to the risk matrix that Mark showed, it's sort of in the, the lower <clears throat> left quadrant. So under the... the uh, the, the middle line going through. So we, we think it's actually probably less likely than you think it is, maybe, and uh, a little less on the economic severity um, uh, matrix. So let's talk about what this could mean. I mean, as Mark mentioned, there's a lot going on. So we had Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February of 2022. Most recently, we had the attack on Israel by Hamas in early October. We've had ongoing tensions with China uh, for quite a while now. 
so there's quite a bit that we could talk about. I think when we think about the risk of a geopolitical event right now, we're thinking of this mostly in the context of how this might set the U.S. economy on a recessionary path. And we think the most likely uh, way that that would happen would be through higher oil prices. And actually not only higher oil prices, but a return to problems in global supply chains that would send both energy prices higher as well as uh, you know, prices of other goods. So that's the way we're thinking about it. And for those of you that consume our forecasts every month, you know that in, in addition to a baseline forecast, we put together alternatives around that baseline. We have a couple of upside scenarios and we have a, a large number of downside scenarios. One of those scenarios right now is the so-called S6, scenario number six scenario. Um, this is what we're calling a stagflation scenario. And this is what we like to point clients to when they're asking about the risk of a wider, um, broader geographic involvement in either one of the conflicts, either in the Middle East or with Russia and Ukraine. So if we think about this in the context of uh, uh, these conflicts widening, right? So with Israel-Hamas, it could be pulling other countries directly into the conflict. Uh, the most likely, I think, uh, thing that, that we're worried about is uh, retaliation, either the U.S. or other uh, countries retaliating, retaliating against Iran for backing Hamas. Iran is a large oil producer. They've recently, in the past several months, upped their output of global oil production uh, pretty significantly. And uh, so either sanctions against them or even the conflict widening geographically and disrupting supply routes for oil uh, could send oil prices higher there. Um, on the Russia-Ukraine front, it could be set more sanctions against Russia for its actions in Ukraine. Uh, Russia is one of the largest oil producers in the world. Uh, we've already seen how this has affected natural gas prices uh, early on in the invasion back in early 2022 from, for Europe, which is highly dependent on Russia for energy. So there again, actions taken against Russia could send uh, energy prices higher, could disrupt supply chains even further. We saw a major disruption in supply chains uh, when Russia first invaded Ukraine in, in uh, early last year. So that's the way we're kind of framing this and thinking about this. You can see here what our baseline forecast looks like relative to this S6 alternative forecast. And I should mention that a bunch of our alternative forecasts have probabilities attached to them. Uh, these are mostly used by financial institutions that have to do stress testing or for CECL or IFRS 9. The S6 is one that does not have a probability attached to it. So these are scenarios that we call thematic scenarios, where there is a story and a narrative behind it, but we don't explicitly attach a probability here. So here you can see uh, our uh, outlook for oil prices on the left-hand part of this slide. So oil prices right now, the, the last I looked uh, right before this webinar, uh, WTI prices were at about $69 a barrel, I think, just under $70 a barrel. So they've come down quite significantly since September when they peaked. Um, a lot of that decline in oil prices has been because 
despite cuts by OPEC and supply, uh, U.S. oil producers have really ramped up production and filled that hole there. So we've seen oil prices come down from their peak, which uh, was in the 80s for WTI, to about $69 a barrel today. You can see that our forecast here has prices coming down further over the next couple of years as the economy weakens and becomes softer and demand weakens weekends here. Now, I should say this forecast that I'm showing here is our November forecast. We're right in the middle of finalizing our December forecast that's going to be released early next week. And we are lowering our outlook for oil prices over the next couple of years in that new forecast. So you'll actually see um, even lower oil prices than what I'm showing here uh, by a few bucks um, a barrel. Oil prices are important for the U.S. economy because consumers are extremely sensitive to oil prices. So every one cent increase in the price of gas at the pump, a price of regular unleaded at the pump, um, translates to consumers spending about a billion dollars on an annualized basis over the course of a year. So it's a large part of consumer spending. It's a part of consumer spending where there often isn't a lot of substitutability Consumers can try to drive more fuel-efficient cars or use public transportation more. They could take fewer uh, airline trips where we see the price of jet fuel increase, but there's not a lot that consumers can do uh, to really untether themselves from the price of gas at the pump. So with oil prices and supply chains uh, and inflation kind of rearing its head again in this S6 scenario, the U.S. economy falls into a recession, and you can see that here on the right-hand side of this panel. So this recession in, in this scenario lasts about a year. It's about four consecutive quarters. And the peak-to-trough decline in GDP would be about 3.4%. <coughs> Excuse me. So if you consume any of our other scenarios, you know that this is a milder recession than, say, in our S4 scenario uh, where GDP falls um, for longer and for much more deeply than this scenario. So this has a, a you know, real consequence that would lead to a, a situation where the Fed is facing higher inflation because the price of oil uh, rising as high as it does leads to uh, rising prices for a bunch of other goods. Also, supply chains lead to uh, gummed up supply chains lead to rising prices for other goods as well. So the Fed's facing a scenario here where economic growth is slowing, demand is uh, declining, and inflation has reared its head yet again, and they're faced with having to fight inflation at the same time that the economy weakens. So uh, when we think about this particular risk, this is how we're thinking about it in the context of oil prices and their impact on the U.S. economy. And again, this is the, the S6 scenario. So for those of you that want a scenario where either one of these geopolitical events widens, this is uh, where we would point you to. So I'll stop right there and see if there's any questions, Mark, or yeah. any other uh, comments. Yeah, sure. I'll have to say, I, I don't ever recall a, a period where it just feels like there's so much stuff going on all over the world and it not registering at all in oil and the dollar and interest rates and credit spreads and equity prices. You know, markets are just 
they're saying no big deal. I mean, I mean, things change, obviously can change very quickly, but so far, very surprising. And you can see it in the oil price. I mean, you can see, look at that, look at our baseline oil price forecast. That was a month ago. And we're already, as you said, we're down to 70 bucks on WTI. I mean, obviously that goes to, as you said, U.S. production is up. Uh, we're getting more production from Brazil and Guyana. You can see the, the OPEC Plus isn't able to keep its uh, production quotas uh, intact. People are cheating, not surprisingly. Uh, and demand from China has been, you know, soft because the Chinese economy isn't all that great. But, you know, it's just uh, just in- incredible to me that uh, we've not seen more fallout from these geopolitical threats on the rest of the uh, on the rest of the financial markets. Um do you have a similar kind of perspective? Yeah, yeah. I mean, investors yeah. have largely shaken this off. If you look at the trajectory yeah. of oil prices over the past couple of months, right. there was a brief spike, right, when Hamas attacked Israel. But then after a few days, that came back in. So it has not persisted. So investors clearly aren't that worried about a widening uh, conflict affecting oil prices. And you're right. I mean, volatility is everywhere you look, I think. Yeah. Right now. So one one question was that came in uh, was that, uh, you know, what at what oil price would uh, there be real damage to the to the U.S. economy? I mean, we're, we're sitting at 70. Like that clearly that's good. I mean, that's a plus because gasoline prices are at 70. If we stay at 70 bucks a barrel, we could see gas at three dollars a gallon, which would be yep. you know, a big plus. So what price do you think would uh, result in significant damage. It would materially change our baseline, and I guess what price at what price would it push us into recession? All else being equal, Do you, I I have a sense of that, but I'm curious if you have a sense of that. I, I think if if we hit ninety, uh, that's bad news, you know. So if it's if it's between ninety and a hundred for a significant period of time, we so if you go back a year, right? We saw oil prices in the upper eighties, and at that time we were fearful that they would go above 90 um, for a significant period of time. So that's sort of what I'm thinking is that the Mm -hmm. 90 threshold is scary. Uh, And if it persists and if we're looking at $100 a barrel oil for, you know, a month or two, then I think we're staring at a recession. Yeah. Okay. That's very consistent. If you translate that into gas prices, I think at 90 bucks a barrel, you're pretty close to $4 a gallon. That gets to be uncomfortable. It starts to weigh on the economy. If if you're over a hundred headed north and you get you know four buck fifty, at one twenty five your uh, barrel you're at five bucks, kind of where we were in the wake of the Russian invasion. We're toast. I think we're going. You know we're going to go into recession. So kind of I think that's a good benchmark. Okay. Well, thanks, Marissa. I'm going to move forward to risk number three, and that is the potential that the Federal Reserve makes a mistake and and uh, you know. I think it's fair to say uh, the Fed has, uh, you know, done a reasonably good job here. I mean, they had a tough uh, uh, task. They had to raise rates high enough, fast enough to slow growth and quell inflation, but not so high, so fast that it undermines the economy and pushes us under recession. And historically, they've never pulled that off or rarely pulled that off uh, in previous historical episodes of high inflation uh, and the Fed on high alert we almost invariably land in recession. So, you know, to, to the, to, in, in that respect, we have to be at least so far uh, respectful of the way the Federal Reserve has kind of managed things. 
But there are risks, uh, and, I, and as, I, as I said earlier in our baseline, we expect the Fed to pull this off. Right? That you know they, they've finished their rate hikes, they're going to start cutting mid next year, slow reduction in rates after that. I do think, and I'll just throw this out, and if there's questions, we can go into uh, more detail. But I do think the uh, where uh, federal funds rate ultimately settles, the so-called equilibrium funds rate, the R star, the rate that's uh, consistent with policy, neither supporting or restraining economic growth is probably somewhere around three. You can see that in our forecast. So I think we go from, you know, right now five and a quarter to five and a half on the funds rate down to about three over the course of a couple by the end of 2025. That's our baseline. And that the, the Fed is is going to get this right. But, you know, uh, there is you know some reasons to be nervous about this, given how difficult it is. And kind of motivating that nervousness is this chart. The blue line represents the the uh, actual federal fund rate target, the so-called effective federal fund rate target. This is a uh, data from January 2019 through uh, dis- uh, the most recent, uh, kind of an average for December, of, uh, and it's averaging 5.33 to be precise in December. The green line represents the fund rate as derived by a so-called reaction function. It's an econometrically estimated reaction function. You know, the it's kind of a Taylor rule that I don't want to use too much jargon, but the idea is that the Fed sets the rate consistent with a number of different uh, criteria, uh, unemployment relative to the full employment unemployment rate, inflation relative to its target, inflation expectations, uh, financial conditions, uh, you know, like equity prices and credit spreads, the value of the dollar, uh, underwriting standards, that's because the translation of monetary policy to the real economy runs through the financial system, and whether the financial system is tightening or not can mitigate or reinforce the efforts by the Fed to move the economy in a certain direction. And, of course, global economic conditions is represented by the dollar. And uh, I, just a couple of things I'll point out. Take a look at uh, uh, the, the uh, green line back in the w- in the middle of the uh, pandemic when the pandemic hit and the shutdowns in early 2020, the the model, the economist estimated reaction function said, hey, we need a negative 4% fund rate target. The world is pretty bad and we got a real problem. Unemployment's going north. We got to really step on the accelerator here. Of course, the Fed didn't want to go negative on the funds rate, uh, didn't adopt negative interest rates. And therefore, that's when it really started to QE by long-term treasury and mortgage securities to bring down long, help bring down long-term interest rates, and it was with, combined with everything else, you know, very successful. Ten-year Treasury yields got down. I think at one point they were below, they were like a half a percentage point or some outrageous, you know, levels. I got really, really quite low. So they kind of simulated uh, a negative funds rate target uh, with their quantitative easing. Uh, the other point in time I want to call out is early 2022. This is uh, right before they started raising interest rates, and you can see. Uh, and this was obviously before Russia invaded Ukraine and oil prices and commodity prices went north. But you can see at that point, the model was saying, the, es- the econometrically estimated reaction function was saying, hey, you guys, we need a funds rate of 2.5%. By the way, uh, 2.5% is, uh, at that point in time, the es- what was estimated to be the equilibrium yield, that so-called R-star. And you, you guys got to start moving really fast here. And, of course, they, you know, I don't want to be too critical uh, about not moving quickly enough because uh, given the uncertainty at the time, uh, uh, pandemic and efficacy of vaccines and all the things that were going on, 
the, the, the policy 101 says if you in a world of uncertainty, you should err, you, the, the Fed or you, fiscal policymakers should err on the side of doing too much. Uh, and they and they did a lot. Uh, and of course, in hindsight, that was a mistake uh, that the you know, we were on the other side of the pandemic. The economy was starting to rip roar. We had the American Rescue Plan with all the fiscal support and the, the Fed was just too slow to start raising interest rates. And I do think in the long list of reasons for why inflation got out of hand here, one of the reasons on the list, not the top, but somewhere on the list is the fact that the Federal Reserve made a mistake. Uh, okay, now fast forward to the current point in time, you can see uh, the model says, the econometrically estimated reaction function says, hey, uh, it, it's not screaming, you know, that rates are too high, but it's kind of saying, hey, guys, rates are a little bit high given everything that we're observing yeah, in the, uh, with regard to the unemployment, with regard to inflation. Yes, rates should be high relative to the equity yield because inflation is still above target, but, you know, unemployment is pretty close to the full employment unemployment rate. Financial conditions are about where you want them. The value dollar is relatively, you know, it's, in, you know, it's kind of on the strongest side. So, you know, uh, be careful here. Now, I don't, you know, this is econometrically estimated equation, so lots of, lots of reasons uh, not to buy in, in, into it completely. But uh, I do think this does illustrate the point that, uh, you know, the Fed could make a mistake. Uh, that the gap here between the blue line and the green line is about 75 basis points. Not, you know, again, not not a screaming problem, but if the Fed were for whatever reason to start raising interest rates or was too slow to start lowering interest rates, you know, uh, as we move into next year, as inflation comes back to target, then that could be a problem, uh, could uh, undermine the economy, particularly in the context of what I said earlier about the shape of the yield curve. The yield curve uh, is inverted. The funds rate target is above the 10-year yield. And that's a to, again, a very uncomfortable place for the banking system to be in. So, you know, our baseline is that the Fed's going to pull this off. Uh, they seem to be kind of getting it just right. But I do think there's uh, s some uh, reason to be nervous here that uh, they could could make a mistake. Um, Chris, I'm going to bring you into the conversation here. You know, you've been the one kind of pounding the drum on this one, uh, that you're fearful that the Fed, and I hope I'm not mischaracterizing your perspective on this. Uh, correct nope, me if nope. I'm wrong. Yeah. So do you want to kind of flesh out your views on this a little bit more before we move on? Uh, sure. So I, I would um, my, I guess my concern is that what happens if we're in the gray zone? Right. If if we have an unemployment rate that is rising, right, let's say it's at four and a quarter, four and a half and unemployment and the inflation rate is still at three percent. Right. Doesn't seem to be uh, moderating. It seems to be stuck, maybe even starting to rise. Then what happens? What does which uh, which poison does the uh, the Fed uh, take at that point? And there, I think we we do run the risk of of recession. I think the Fed is committed to inflation first um, in that environment, and that certainly could you know cause the Fed to take actions that that uh, push us into recession. Right, hiking uh, rates essentially to continue to get inflation down. Right. So that's I don't again I don't that's not my base case, but um, it's one I'm I'm concerned about when we're in that in that gray zone. I think in your chart here, yeah, you could go back to 2022 and say, well, obviously they were late to the game, but now let's say we're in this in this position where you know it's not clear what uh, what action they should should be taking, um, given the trends in unemployment and in inflation. Got it. Got the it. The other you thing I'm trying to is, of course, the oh, sorry, go ahead. 
the other thing to note, of course, is the, the data is, is subject to revision. They're working with a limited set of facts when they make these decisions, right? Easy to say in hindsight, but when, when you're in the heat of it and you're looking at data that might subsequently be revised, you know, I think the probability of making a mistake is, is elevated. Got it. Got it. Um, you were monitoring the questions as they were coming in. Anything, and you mentioned there were some up top. Was there anything you wanted to just put forward now before we push forward on the presentation? Yeah, there's one about um, have markets uh, fully uh, felt the effects of uh, the 525 basis point jump, right? This I think this goes to the long and variable lags uh, right. argument of the Fed, um, right? And maybe goes also dovetails on whether the Fed may be making, potentially making a mistake if they are uh, either under or overestimating the, the effect of the lagged effects. Any thoughts on yeah. whether or not markets have fully digested? I mean, they've turned quite optimistic now that there's going to be a cut soon. Yeah, I, I think the markets, if you look at futures markets for Fed funds, uh, I think it uh, fully discounting, uh, you know, what the Fed is, is, has said it's going to do and what it will do. Uh, I mean, it's, I say that with some intrepidation because, it depends on what day you look at the futures markets because they're moving all over the place. It wasn't long ago that they were uh, still, you know, thinking. Well, it was not long ago that they were right on the on the same page. I think with the Fed in terms of the rate uh, that higher for longer rate, it's going to we might see a rate cut next year or two, but it's going to be a slow path downward to you know back to equilibrium. They're a little bit more optimistic today, but I think in general markets, financial conditions have done a pretty good job discounting kind of monetary policy. So I think that is one reason to suspect that a lot of the uh, economic impact of the Fed rate hikes are, uh, we, we felt them or we are feeling them, uh, at least in terms of the uh, uh, impacts on the rate of growth. You know, there's still going to be negative effects of the rate hikes going forward, but they become less and less significant as we move forward. The other thing to consider, and this is one reason why I think the equilibrium rate, the R star, is probably higher than it has been, uh, you know, at least before the pandemic or during the pandemic, is households and businesses have done a non-financial corporates have done a very good job of locking in the previously low interest rates, at least in aggregate. Household debt service burdens are are low and stable. That's the percent of income that households have to devote on their debt to remain current on it. It's very low and stable. And if you look at the corporate interest expense, you know, being paid out, that's that's about as low as, I think it's as low as it's been, as you know, if you look at it as a share of cash flow, kind of an interest coverage ratio, I think it's as low as it's been in the data we have back to World War II, and that's through Q3 2023. So, you know, those those debt coverage, interest coverage ratios, those debt service numbers are going to change over time as uh, debts roll over and they roll over at a higher interest rate and new debt is originated at a higher interest rate, no doubt about it. But I think it's going to play out over a longer period of time, a long period of time. And so the kind of the headwinds that that creates to the economy are, you know, uh, I'd say manageable, you know, digestible, you know, not not going to be a, a big deal. And it makes it maybe even a little easier to calibrate policy, you know, uh, because uh, you, you, you're always if you're in a mark in an economy where like in many other parts of the world where you have a lot of adjustable rate debt that adjusts quickly with market rates very difficult to gauge, you know, what the kind of the impact on the economy is going to be. It could be very sharp, very severe and, and uh, do a lot of damage, but much less so in here in the U.S. in the current context, because, again, households and businesses have done a pretty good job, you know, locking in things. 
Okay, uh, as a, uh, because we're, uh, we got three more risks to go and we got a half hour to do it in, let's push forward and let's go to risk number four. And I'll take this one again. And it's, uh, the banking system falters again. Again, obviously refers to the um, SVB crisis, the Silicon Valley ba Bank crisis uh, uh, back in March of uh, this year uh, when uh, SVB failed along with a signature bank and created a or sparked a uh, bank run, forcing the Federal Reserve to establish a credit facility to help the banking system kind of navigate through, uh, provide it with liquidity against its uh, securities portfolios. And also we saw the uh, FDIC and other regulators kind of step in and insure depositors, whether they were uh, uh, below the deposit insurance limit or above. Uh, I, you know, Obviously, in our baseline, we're expecting the banking system, and let me say the financial system more broadly, than including the non-bank part of the system, the so-called shadow system, to kind of hang tough here uh, and uh, uh, navigate through without another event. Or if there is another crack in the financial system somewhere, that it will be relatively easily dealt through so that it doesn't become a broader problem for credit flows, which is ultimately what matters in terms of you know economic activity. Uh, but having said that, the system is uh, the operating environment for the financial system, the banking system, and the non-banks is, is uh, I'd say, uh, uncomfortable. Uh, it's a tough operating environment, uh, pretty vexed, uh, you know, again, in the context of an inverted yield curve with high short-term interest rates, uh, you know, uh, the banking system is uh, experiencing competition for deposits, you know, obviously deposits are critical to funding uh, loan growth and credit creation, uh, credit growth uh, the, the, from the retail money market funds. And that's the point of this chart. This shows the amount of cash sitting in those retail account uh, money market funds in billions of dollars. You can see how that has taken off here. 1.6 trillion in money market funds, you know, almost just about double what it was just prior to, to the pandemic. And it looks like it's going straight north. And the money funds are paying a, a, you know, a good interest rate, a very competitive interest rate, which is making it very difficult for the banks to kind of manage uh, their, their deposits and, and their liabilities. Um, the other thing to consider is the, the money funds also have a kind of a line back into the Federal Reserve, uh, kind of a re reverse repo line that really gives them a kind of a competitive advantage here because if they ever get into trouble, they can call on that line and really help to support their their activities. So I do think this is a formidable uh, competition. The other aspect of the operating environment that's, that's difficult is uh, lending growth. Uh, that is slowing. Uh, you know, in the wake of the banking crisis back in March, banks have tightened down on their underwriting. I, I didn't show a chart here, but all of you are aware of the uh, a senior loan officer survey that's conducted by the Federal Reserve every quarter, and it clearly shows a, a sharp tightening down of underwriting standards. And you can see it in terms of loan growth, uh, the growth in, in credit, uh, particularly uh, in, um, in the C&I lending, commercial industrial lending, that's lending by the banks to, uh, to, to businesses, most, more, more small, mid-sized companies. You can also see it in terms of consumer credit growth. I mean, the growth in consumer finance has uh, come to a standstill. Retail card, even bank card, uh, which is still growing relatively strongly, we're seeing pretty uh, sharp uh, slowing in growth here uh, most recently. So uh, weaker net interest margins, uh, slower loan growth, uh, weakening credit quality. Uh, this goes back to CRE, commercial real estate. Uh, 
while the banking system as a whole feels like it's in a pretty good spot relative to its exposure to commercial real estate mortgages and to commercial mortgage-backed securities and to CNI lending to real estate companies like uh, REITs, you can see here that smaller banks, uh, banks with assets of below $10 billion, that's the second bar uh, in the chart, uh, are highly exposed to CRE, uh, that uh, you know their uh, CRE exposure is much greater than their uh, 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 tangible common equity and such and such as such they are uh, you know quite vulnerable to any weakening in uh in underwriting uh environment in, in terms of uh, delinquencies and uh particularly defaults <clears throat> and i would not be surprised if we do see a number of small banking institutions again kind of in the billion dollar range maybe 10 20 billion dollar range that actually don't make it through this period that will actually fail now, in my baseline optimism about the economy, that should not be systemically important, not SIFI, shouldn't generate, you know, a run on the banking system. But, uh, you know, I probably would have said that, too, if you told me a bank the size of SBV, SVV failed. It was a $200 billion bank, good size, but that wasn't considered to be systemically important either, either as a SIFI institution. And, you know, given that depositors are uh, already on edge, given the ease of uh, withdrawing funds and moving them around through online banking, given social media and the impact that can have on people's expectations, uh, uh, you know, I don't think we can rule out the possibility of another event in the, in the banking system. You know, I've got this uh, kind of this image in my mind that the system is kind of like a, an, a, an engine and it's, sh it's shaking violently under the pressure of these higher interest rates and the inverted curve and all the things I just described. Uh, it blew a gasket, you know, back in uh, March and the Fed and FDIC and other regulators kind of got the gasket back in and taped it all up. But the system is still the engine is still shaking violently and something could break. And so I view this as a, a material risk to, to my optimism. I, I don't I, I don't have a good sense of timing or exactly where the gasket is going to blow. But, you know, I do think it's a, something that uh, needs to be on the radar screen. And I did also want to say it's not only about the banking system. I know that was what um, the participants in this webinar called out. It's also in, in the non-bank part of the system, you know, uh, what's going on with regard to particularly lending to non-financial corporates. Uh, and that's being done in lots of different ways, showing you one way here, the so-called leverage lending. This is a kind of a bank loans that are syndicated uh, more broadly. And uh, in this case, these are leveraged loans that are going into uh, CLOs, collateralized loan obligations. And, you, and the point I wanted to make is this is this is only, you know, a bit of the elephant uh, called the non-bank system. So I'm we're just touching a part of the elephant. But you can see the growth rates here. It's just incredible. I mean, the latest data I have is there's 900 billion in outstanding leveraged loans in CLOs, and that's more than double what it was, you know, just back, uh, you know, prior to the uh, to the to the start of the pandemic, that, that's a lot of growth. And you can see I've broken it down in the in the uh, in the uh, in the uh, table there by industry. Uh, you can see the size of the amount outstanding in the first column, and then the growth over the past decade. And that's pretty heady growth. I mean, take a look at construction and building. That's a pretty cyclical, obviously, business. And thirty five point five percent annualized growth. That's that's not inconsequential. Small dollar amounts, but nonetheless. And this is just, again, a part of the elephant. This doesn't include the leveraged loans that are not going into CLOs, but into the kind of the netherworld of the shadow system. Does not include private credit, which is um, 
about 1.6 trillion that's uh, you know going to similar non-financial corporates of you know financing a lot of private equity deals that kind of thing. Uh, it doesn't it include straight up CNI loans, uh, you know, that the banks are doing to small businesses. So you you add it all up, uh, or the junk corporate bond market for that matter of fact. So this all that's all all the things I just mentioned are credit going to uh, you know uh, non financial businesses that are uh, uh, below investment grade. They're they're less credit worthy. Uh, they've got you know some kind of issue uh, and less vulnerable if anything else goes wrong. So um, again, I I don't. I don't have something specific to point out and say that's a problem, but it just feels like all of the the ingredients, all the fodder for something going off the rails here are in place. And, you know, it could very well be ignited uh, if interest rates uh, don't start to recede here, uh, at least according to our baseline script. If they stay higher for even longer than we're anticipating, something could break in the system and, and undo, the econ- undo the system and un- ultimately undo the economy. Okay, um, uh, Marissa, Chris, any questions about that from the from the audience before we uh, move on? I guess one related question is um, how significant the uh, 2025 to 2027 speculative grade maturity will refi- refinancing at higher rates be for U.S. economic prospects? So- yeah, I mean that's a great question. So if you look at the uh, kind of the uh, maturity dates of all this debt I just described, we've got really good data on uh, junk, the junk corporate market, for example. It doesn't look overwhelmingly worrisome to me. It's one reason I take some solace in the economy, the economy's prospects, because the maturities, the amount that's coming due this year, 24, 25, into 25, relatively modest. It gets to be more after that, but, you know, Lots, lots of things are going to happen between now and then, and a lot does depend on the interest rate environment. I mean, if interest rates do remain much higher than I'm anticipating into that period of time, then we got a problem. But hopefully, and I think reasonably to expect, rates will start to come back down, normalized to, to a more significant degree. And as a result, you know, these, these, these loans will be able to be rolled over at a rate that isn't uh, onerous, so onerous that it results in these companies being forced to make some tough choices about investment, hiring, paying their debt, so forth and so on. So I'm not overly worried about it. I mean, I think that's one reason to be reasonably uh, you know, optimistic about things, but, but nonetheless, I don't want to dismiss that as an issue. Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. And I'm gonna, uh, we've got two more risks to cover. Uh, and uh, the next one is a bit thorny. Thus, thus, we gave it to Marissa to handle. So, <laughs> best of luck with this one. This is this is a uh, you know I don't think we can discount this. So, uh, uh, what do you uh, define what this means in, in your thinking and you know what uh, how this might manifest in the economy? Sure. Yes, this is a thorny one. Um, so, social and political unrest has has been on our risk matrix for a while. This could mean a lot of different things, right? I mean, we just went through a period starting in late 19, uh, sorry, late 2019 into 2020 with uh, COVID, the pandemic, we had uh, the 2020 election, we had um, Black Lives Matter and a number of, you know, social issues come to the fore. So all of these things resulted in a lot of social and political unrest back in 2020, and we're staring down another election next year, which looks like it could very well be uh, Donald Trump versus Joe Biden. 
And there's a lot, lot of angst around what the results of that will be and how those results will be uh, taken um, on the losing side, right? So <clears throat> that's kind of what, the way we're thinking about it. And in fact, compared to the last risk I presented, we think this is actually a little bit more likely to happen. Um, so let's, let's talk about how we're thinking a, a, about that. Um, so I think when people answer this question, you know, I think they are thinking about this mostly in terms of uh, the 2024 election coming up, right? And, and what that could mean. We've already got a couple questions about what the Fed may or may not want to do in 2024, um, right before an election. So let's just look at, uh, you know, some indicators here. This is Mark, your favorite, the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey. And as you mentioned at the top of the talk, we've really been discounting this when we look at how consumers feel because there's been um, very notable divorce happening between um, what consumers say they feel about the economy versus what they're actually doing. Um, Mark, you showed consumer spending chugging along at the same pace we would have expected in the absence of the pandemic. Yet when we look at consumer sentiment surveys, they're terrible. The conference board's survey of consumers is more sanguine than this one, the University of Michigan. There's probably a couple reasons for that. One, the conference board survey is more focused on uh, the job market, prospects in the job market, prospects for wages and earnings. The University of Michigan asks more questions about prices and inflation and gas prices. And we know inflation is top of mind for people when they answer questions about the economy because it's what they're facing on a day-to-day -day basis and often take little solace in the fact that inflation is down significantly from its peak because prices are still high, right, relative to where they were a few years ago. But one interesting thing to note in the University of Michigan survey is they ask people to identify uh, their, their political affiliation, whether Democrat, Republican, independent, or something else. And what we've seen since the inception of this survey is that the responses have been become much more partisan and much more swayed by how people identify politically. So you can see back when the survey was started back in 1980, and we had two back-to-back -back Republican administrations with Ronald Reagan and George W. Bush, um, there wasn't a huge difference, right, between the way Republicans and Democrats um, saw the economy. I mean, you did see Republicans thinking the economy was better than Democrats during these two administrations, and then that flipped during President Obama. But you've seen something really different happen starting in 2016 with the election of Donald Trump. So coming off of uh, Barack Obama's administration, you see this huge gap open up in terms of how people say they view the economy, depending on whether there's a Democrat in office or a Republican in office. And you can see this has continued uh, through President Biden's <clears throat> uh, administration. Not expecting this to get any better anytime soon, right? So we are, not a surprise to anyone, extremely politically divided in terms of the way we see the economy and in the way we see the world. And the result of this, we've seen actual um, results of this, right? We saw, we just went through a period where the House was unable to elect leadership after ousting Kevin McCarthy. 
And that had real implications for what the government can and cannot get done if they cannot elect a leader. Um, and so we've seen that this has real consequences, right? The, the partisan infighting um, can bring the government to a standstill. So uh, how do we think about this or process this in terms of the economy? Well, there's a couple ways we can look at this. Uh, one is that we have uh, a country risk service that's relatively new um, and is really interesting. We look at every country in the world, um, even those that we don't directly forecast, and we rate them on a number of risk factors. You can see what those risk factors are here on the right-hand side panel. So we give them an overall risk score, but it's based on economic risk, business risk, financial risk, social risk, et cetera. So uh, we've seen for the U.S. that social risk has risen uh, quite a bit in the last few years. Now, you'll note this is the blue line on the left-hand side. You'll note right now it's not really much higher than it was right in the mid-20-teens. But you can see um, that huge spike in 2020, as I mentioned, some of the factors uh, working there. And then you see it rising again since the start of 2022. And if we look at the contributing factors to what's driving that social risk score higher, um, the main factors are distrust in the political system, um, rising income inequality, rising crime rates in some major cities across the country. Um, and then even looking further out, perhaps the adoption of artificial intelligence uh, could disrupt, you know, the job market significantly and lead to people losing jobs, right? So there has been a lot more social angst that we can measure. And a lot of this, uh, a lot of these surveys that try to measure this do so by looking at web searches, looking at um, news articles on various topics and, and kind of comparing that to, to a baseline average or a median. So we can see that this has becoming um, more of an issue. Now, why, again, what does this have to do with the economy? Well, as I mentioned earlier, if we, uh, if we can't have effective leadership, if some sort of uh, constitutional crisis were to happen next year or early 2025, we're looking at a government that's sort of paralyzed and unable to, to do anything significant. Um, we know that right now the debt to GDP ratio is right around 100% in the US. The Congressional Budget Office, who updates forecasts for our fiscal situation, is forecasting that by 2050, we're looking at a GDP a debt to GDP ratio of about 180%. And at that point, especially given that we're facing higher rates of uh, higher interest rates, right? And we expect interest rates, as Mark just talked about, to remain higher for longer, we're looking at a much larger share of our uh, fiscal revenue going toward debt service. So when you go out to 2050, you're looking at uh, the CBO projecting that about 7% of our GDP will be going to debt service alone. And if we don't address this, then eventually the government's gonna have to make some tough choices. They're not gonna wanna default on the debt. Um, but with all of that money going toward debt service, that means there's less money to fund other programs, social programs, defense, you know, essential services. So we're looking at uh, potentially a pretty dire situation as we move out. And if we have some sort of 
um, you know, crisis where there's a lack of leadership or simply there's just very partisan divided government for a long time. And these issues don't get addressed. We don't address uh, long term entitlement programs. We don't address discretionary spending or defense spending. Uh, we fight over whether or not to raise or lower taxes. Then this does present a real risk, although I think this is uh, you know, probably a longer term risk when we talk about um, the debt to GDP ratio. But certainly with the 2024 election, this could make things uh, even less likely to get done over that time period. So I will stop it there, Mark, because I know we're low on time and just see if there's anything you want to add or any questions. No, that was, that was great. We are running low and I do want to get to the last risk. Uh, and that's a pretty thorny one. And we are going to weigh in more on that going forward. We have a, as you know, a model that at the electoral college level that predicts who's going to win. We're working on updating that now. We'll present those results in early January before the Iowa um, primary and uh, use that as a basis for starting to talk about the kinds of things that you brought up here in, in a little bit more detail. And we will probably in all likelihood run another scenario or two through our models to try to put some numbers to some of these concerns that I think uh, are, are valid. I think it's going to be a uh, it could be the number one, ultimately end up being the number one risk for uh, 2024. So with that uh, uh, happy note, uh, unfortunately, let me turn it over to, to Chris to kind of bring us home on house prices. Great. Uh, thanks, thanks, Mark. So, yeah, so the um, audience also indicated house price crash as a potential uh, risk factor here, kind of high on the list. Um, certainly not terribly surprising given our history, right? Uh, house price crash last time around and during the Great Recession. And so given the recent path of house prices uh, in terms of a 45% growth in home prices from 2020 to today, uh, I think that naturally would bring uh, perk up the ears of any risk manager who's looking at this market and wondering, well, could house prices actually correct? I'd characterize the house, housing market today as, as fairly unhealthy, right? It's, it's largely frozen. The number of existing home sales is at a multi-decade low, lower than it was during the Great Recession or, or, or the pandemic, right? And uh, you have uh, some opposing forces going on here with high mortgage rates, making it very unaffordable uh, for home, home buyers, particularly first-time home buyers, younger adults. So they're moving to the sidelines, finding or uh, identifying other housing arrangements, whether that's renting or staying with parents or roommates. Right, so that demand is coming in. And at the same time, you have low inventories of, uh, of homes for sale because many existing home buyer or homeowners are locked into their, their mortgages, right? And even if they desired to move, they wanted to, to trade up the financial costs that they would bear from going from a, say, 3% mortgage to a 7, 7.5% mortgage is just, uh, just too high for them uh, to make that transition. So you don't see the supply of homes on, on the market. And so uh, as a result, you're having this tug of war between um, supply and demand here. And right now, the supply is kind of winning. You can see that in the house price index on the left-hand side of the slide here. House prices were decelerating uh, over the, the last year or so, back in 2022. Uh, but then more recently, you've seen a pickup in, in, in those home prices as those low inventories have caused uh, those a uh, few buyers who are out there to continue to bid up prices. So then the question is, well, what, what happens next? And I think in the short term, 
this uh, this activity is likely to continue. You probably will see prices bouncing around here uh, for a while. There will be some support. But longer term, if you look at uh, the existing sustainability of home prices, I think the question becomes uh, uh, much more ambiguous, right? On the right-hand side of the slide here, you can see some key house price ratios that we typically look at to identify whether or not the uh, housing market is in, a, uh, is in equilibrium or in a sustainable place. And today you can see that the median price to income ratio is just under 5.5 times. It's much higher than it was during the housing boom back in the, in the 2000s, and substantially higher than the typical kind of realtor's rule of thumb of say three and a half to four times uh, income being the, uh, the threshold for, uh, uh, for a home purchase. So from that standpoint, it looks as though prices are, are certainly rich relative to incomes. Prices are also rich relative to rents, and that's what you can see from the green line with the right-hand scale here. Right, The median price to rent ratio, right around 23 times, is also elevated compared to history. You can uh, think about this as being analogous perhaps to a stock market PE or a price to earnings ratio. And so 23 uh, on a PE basis tends to be quite high. We would expect something closer to, to maybe 2021 to be uh, more of an equilibrium level. So. I think that has these types of statistics have perked up the ears of in terms of a potential housing market correction or, or crash here. Now, our baseline outlook calls for a more gradual a return to equilibrium. So on the slide here, I'm showing you the same Moody's Analytics house price index back to uh, 2013. You can see the, the sharp rise in prices uh, since 2020. Our expectation is that prices move more or less sideways with a little bit of a, a downward shift in order to bring us back to uh, more of a trend level of house price growth, right? So to get back, to get those price to income or price to rent ratios back to equilibrium, we need really three things to happen. We need incomes to continue to grow, right? So as long as the labor market remains relatively healthy, you get some wage growth, although it's moderating, that should help to over time bring prices and incomes back into alignment. Declines in mortgage rates that mark uh, outlined earlier will also help with affordability, bring down uh, those more monthly mortgage payments, and that certainly would help to uh, get the the housing market moving again and bring us closer to more of an equilibrium level from an affordability standpoint. And then we do believe you need some uh, price declines here in order to really get us back to this uh, equilibrium in a relatively short order. If we don't get those declines, as you can see in our upside scenarios here, uh, we could certainly get back to an equilibrium, but it would take much longer, right? So to get back to an equilibrium within say a two, three year period here, you'd need a combination of all three of those factors. There is downside risk here though. Uh, you do see our scenario four here calls for a 21% uh, peak to trough decline in, in home prices. This is a scenario though that does envision a 10% unemployment rate, right? There are a number of shocks going on to the economy uh, here that really make it very difficult uh, for for potential home buyers and even existing homeowners would uh, feel much more pressure in terms of, uh, of payments. You'd see a, a sharp rise in delinquencies and foreclosures, and that would be the catalyst for that decline. So it's, a, it's possible. It's certainly a, a scenario we consider. Not very likely, though, today relative to the Great Recession, given some key changes to our economy or our housing markets in terms of much stronger lending standards. So today's homeowners have much more equity in their homes. They have locked in a very low mortgage rate to a large degree, so easier to afford these uh, these mortgages on a go-forward basis. You also have a demographic uh, shift here 
with much more demand for housing underlying the market here. So if we were to see start to see some price declines, provided the labor market is still uh, hanging in there, you would likely see some more home buyers stepping up to prevent prices from really uh, collapsing. So it is a scenario to consider, but I don't see this as the, the most likely uh, scenario that would take us into recession uh, at this point. And with that, I'll stop, maybe turn it back to you, Mark. Okay, well, thank you. Um, I'm, there, we got a ton of questions. Uh, I, I'm afraid, though, we, we have no time. But uh, we answered a boatload on the way, along the way, and we answered some in the chat function. Uh, the remaining will probably record another uh, podcast-like webinar thing where we go over the questions and post that for people so that they can get uh, they can see all the questions and they can see the answers to all the questions. So we'll, we'll get back to on all of those. And if you have any other questions, you know, please feel free to uh, fire away. I do want to end uh, unfairly though, uh, Chris, Marissa, uh, if you had to pick one more risk, what would it be? What, what one thing else would you have called out that we didn't call out so far? I'll go to you first, Chris. Oh gosh, you know, you know, I can easily go to the dark side. So, <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm worried about uh, more of those uh, geopolitical risks uh, creeping in, or kind of the the known unknowns, okay. or even the unknown unknowns. Um, something that uh, that comes out of of nowhere, spooks consumers, spooks the economy, causes a, a significant reaction. So, you know, it could be anything from uh, a conflict between other other nations or with the U.S. Uh, that suddenly arises to potential terrorist attacks, right? There are all sorts of things that, you know, as risk managers, we have to be aware of that just pop out of, no, out of nowhere. Marissa? Uh, <clears throat> maybe some credit risk on, on ah. the consumer side. Um, oh, okay. Higher delinquency rates or, or just credit deteriorating faster than we're expecting. Right, because so, some of the data there look, Look pretty great. soft. <laughs> Not great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I was going to say cyber. We're running a scenario. Yeah. It's kind of a, a bit of an ad for uh, a cyber scenario that we're going to be releasing in the next few weeks uh, around a, a attack on the nation's ACH system. This is, you know, the payment system. Uh, and I think uh, uh, people will find that quite interesting and, and sobering. And we work very closely with... Um, the folks over in the rating agency that do a lot of work in this area and BitSight, which is a really cool firm that uh, thinks about cyber uh, uh, for their living. And so we've been working closely with them. So we'll, we'll be back uh, in, with you in, in talking about that. So, so with that, uh, you guys must be exhausted out there. An hour and a half. I can't believe it. Uh, I think most people hung on. I couldn't believe that they did, but you did. And hopefully you found it of some value. And um, again, uh, if you have any questions, just fire away and, uh, We'll, we'll see you soon. Take care now.